Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 10 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Recently, someone asked me if one could use Hadoop as the replacement for a relational database management system as the data store for a app or a web-based application. And although my initial reaction was no, upon thinking about it further, I realized that someone somewhere must be using Hadoop in real time, interacting in real time in a transactional way. So I searched my network and met my colleague Christos. And Christos has been working on a project that does this very thing. So Christos and I met to discuss his experience and the challenges and to better understand some of the things that the team dealt with. Hey, Christos, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hello, Chris. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. Can you help the audience get to know you a little bit and give us your background? Yeah, sure. So I'm a big data architect for Pythian. I mainly work around big data technologies such as Hadoop and on-premise installations, but also cloud applications that may be Google Cloud, BigQuery, or Redshift and Amazon technologies. Okay. How long have you been working with these technologies? I've been working for about five years with those technologies for about three years in Pythium. Okay. Excellent. Before we get into the project that you've been working on, let's start with some foundational knowledge. Can you give us a brief overview of the Hadoop architecture in general? Yes, sure. So Hadoop is a distributed system that works on big data. What it does, it allows the users to store petabytes or terabytes of data in multiple data nodes. And this can scale to thousands of data nodes. And also it can allow for distributed processing on the same nodes that actually store the data. This has a great value because it actually allows us to bring processing near the data and not move data across the network. This is very valuable when we have to deal with petabytes of data. Excellent. And just helping anyone who comes from the conventional relational database world, are there any key differences that you would like to highlight for those folks? Sure, yes, there are many. So first, Hadoop is not made for transactional data. You cannot have the kind of transactions you have in a normal relational database. What it's built to do and it's designed to do is to scale to enormous data sizes. And in order to do that, transactions were something that we needed to get rid of in the beginning. So it is created for doing analytical processing, running queries across multiple databases, but not actually storing in a transactional way. Okay, good. Folks, one thing that's really important to understand for this interview and some of the things that we're going to be covering is what a transaction is in a database and maybe knowing a little bit about ACID. I'm going to include a couple of links in the show notes for you to read. Wikipedia is a great source, except it's very long and very detailed and a a summary will do. So those links will be in the show notes. If you don't know what these things are, you might want to hit pause on the podcast, click through those links. I'll make sure that they're the first two for you and then return to the podcast and continue. I'm going to very briefly summarize a transaction 
as well. So a transaction is, and this actually comes from the link that I'm going to share, which is a TechNet article. A transaction is a sequence of operations performed as a single logical unit of work. A logical unit of work must exhibit four properties, and this is what we call asset, called the atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability properties to qualify as a transaction. So folks, like I say, if you if this is unfamiliar to you, maybe give that a quick read before returning to the rest of the podcast. Christos, let's dive right into the project. So what does the application do? Okay, so this was all about a mobile payments application. And what we needed to have was have a backend where we would store actual mobile payments for a big financial institution. And Initially, this would have to scale to few millions of users and several hundreds of millions of transactions per day. I mean, payment transactions. But in the end, mm-hmm. this, would, this was going to be adopted by a lot larger user base, and that would bring us billions of user transactions every day. So this makes inevitable that a database cannot handle this load, not even the volume or the velocity that data flies into the system. Therefore, we had to adopt Hadoop for that. Another very important reason was like, after we store the transactions in the system, and that is the payment transactions, we needed to do lots of analytical processing. Therefore, ingesting data into Hadoop was fundamental for this project. Right. So it sounds like that last point alone means that's why you couldn't choose, say, a Cassandra-type system, which wouldn't have facilitated the analytics. Yes, because all the tooling that was used for that project was based on Hadoop. And if we had to bring that in Cassandra later, we'd have to have another pipeline that will load data from Cassandra into Hadoop anyways. Right. Okay. So you can't get much more transactional than a payment type application. Can you give the audience an idea of the number of users? Yeah, originally it was about to be about 10 million of users handling payments every day. And that brings us to about 100 million of payments, payment transactions every day. But later that was going to be a lot large, like 60 or 80 million users and a lot more payments. Okay, That's, uh, that's definitely web scale. Is the size of the data significant? Yeah, the size of the data was about... 20 terabyte per day in the beginning of the project, but that was expected to grow a lot more. Okay. When we say Hadoop, we often are actually talking about several technologies at once. So obviously Hadoop is used, but what about other techs like Hive or HBase or Kafka or or what what technologies are involved? Hadoop is not actually a single technology. It is rather a rich ecosystem that comprises of several components. When we say Hadoop, Essentially, we mean HDFS, which is the distributed file system where we store data on. But other than that, we had to use HBase, which is a NoSQL database where we were going to store the transactions. And other than that, we used applications such as Kafka, which is a distributed broker system and through which data was going to be ingested in the system and Spark for actually doing the application processing. Okay, excellent. And folks, if you Google that, you can you can get much deeper into each of those technologies. So I'm curious, roughly how many nodes are involved in this application? 12 nodes for HBase and 6 nodes for Kafka. Okay, cool. 
Are there other databases involved in being the backend for this application, or is Hadoop the only backend data store? No, Hadoop is the only backend data store. No other database for that. Okay, cool. So what have some of the challenges been in trying to use Hadoop in a transactional way? So, yes, the first challenge was to actually implement a transaction. Again, as we said, Hadoop does not inherently support transactions. So what we had to do was we had to implement this functionality in the application level, and that makes it a lot more complicated. Okay. A second problem we, we had was like, because transactions are initially stored in memory and then flashed onto disk, we had to be able to compensate for lost transactions. So in case a process fails, we had to be able to redo the transactions. And that was like, we had to build a journal on top of Kafka. Okay, got it. That must have been challenging. Yes, it was because transaction management is something that the database have been working for long. And when you want to implement that yourself on the application side, there are certain areas that need to be covered that are very complicated. Right. I don't think we need to cover all the details right now, but there are things like how do we support atomicity or how are we able to undo a transaction are really, really challenging parts. Right. And for those not overly familiar with databases, this is important because sometimes you need to lump units of work together, like the business logic. For example, if you're creating a, a new record in a database, say it's a real estate system, you know, you have business rules like maybe every house has to have an owner or maybe every person has to have an address and you might store those bits of data in different tables. And if part of the insert or part of writing that information fails, you want to have nothing left. You don't want to have your rule maybe that you can't have a person with a phone number, for example. And so you either want a person with a phone number or nothing so that the, the end user then retries, you know, writing the thing and fixes maybe their area code or whatever it is with the data. And I really am oversimplifying it, but this is the general idea behind some of this, this requirement. And here we should note that HBase has a similar concept with tables and it has like microtransaction support, which means that if we write data on the same row of the same table, this is atomic. It either is stored or fails. So we had to actually use this feature to make our own transactions on top of that. Okay. Okay. So that was transaction handling. What other issues did you encounter? So another problem we had was about latency. You can understand that when you have millions of users working on a mobile payments application, latency should be really, really low. However, with HBase and in order to be able to handle this load, we had to use lots of memory. And that was more than 64 or 128 gigabytes per node. And of course, I don't want to get into details, but there is a lot of latency there that happens from memory management and garbage collection. So what we had to do was instead of having a single process with huge memory on one machine, we had to break it down to multiple smaller processes that were working independently. Okay. And what about like a conventional database has very complex index options and it's always, you know, kind of working to ensure that the data is quickly retrievable and indexing is a big part of a DBA's job. How does indexing work in this case? 
So yes, also I would like to say that in a, in a conventional database, updating the indexes is part of these transactions. So indexes are updated when the transaction is committed. In our case, we didn't have the time and we could not afford losing time into handling indexes. So this is something we had to do later in a batch. So this is handled by a separate process that is not in the part of the transaction, but rather runs every few minutes to update the indexes. Okay. I am kind of curious, like originally Hadoop was created, my understanding is for, you know, mainly analysis and the type of analysis is like processing tons of data and things didn't really necessarily happen in real time. Like you would kick off a job and it would come back sometime. How do you monitor the latency performance for this application? How do you ensure that the users are being served in a timely manner? So there are many ways to do that. The first thing is in the application level, we had several triggers that were going to actually send events when the latency in the backend was going to be increased. Okay. Other than that, we were using plain logging, and then we monitor the logs for long transaction times. Okay. So what happens if a user you know, clicks submit and it's going to take a very long time? Is there a, like a timeout issued to the, the user? Does it detect it in real time? Yeah, the, the end application will detect a few seconds of, of latency and it will time out so the transaction will not be performed. Okay. In this case, we need to be able to compensate if we have stored that in the backend. So after that, we need to send an undo command for that. Okay, that's a transaction logic that you had to create. Yeah. Okay. Were there any other significant issues that you had to overcome? Other than that, the largest challenge for this was how do we scale this application? So how do we make it scale out when adding more nodes, more Kafka nodes, and more HBase nodes? Okay. But that is something that is fundamental in the original design. That is something we as a big data team are called to do for our clients. Okay. I am kind of curious, and I'm not sure if you can answer this or not, but is the project using a public cloud or on-prem data centers? This is on-prem. Okay. This is on-prem. Hadoop installation. Okay, cool. Well, that certainly is a unique way to use Hadoop. I, I hadn't actually heard of this, anyone doing this. And in researching for this episode, you know, really didn't find a lot on the web that people are talking about. So that's part of why I really wanted to share this discussion with the public. Let's shift a little bit into kind of a more general Hadoop conversation since you're kind of working with it on the cutting edge every single day, is this a natural evolution for Hadoop? Do you, do you see it as being growing to be a, more of a transactional database system? It is. And to start with, we see every day streaming ingestion. So, so far in the beginning, we had batch processing. So batch loading to Hadoop cluster. And then it is all about how do we do real-time processing and how do we do streaming ingestion? So the next step, was how do we make sure that we're not losing any data or we don't have duplicates when we load data into a system? And that is about how we need transactions there. Okay. So far, this is something we implement in application, but I would see that coming into Hadoop infrastructure and Hadoop systems. Okay. Are there any kind of key features coming out in Hadoop in the near future that you're particularly excited about that we should watch? Well, I would say Hive is going to support acid transactions soon. There have been some draft implementations for that, 
there are still some issues, but Hive is going to support ACID transactions. Okay. That'll be a bit of a game changer, I, I think. Yes. And Hive, for anyone listening, Hive is, I guess we'll call it the component of Hadoop that allows old school DBAs like me to feel comfortable with Hadoop because we're using a very SQL-like, it does not conform to ANSI 92, but it is a very SQL-like interface and I can you know, quickly become very dangerous. In, yes. In Hadoop. Originally, Hadoop was based around MapReduce pattern, which was kind of complicated for regular DBAs. So... What Hive does is it allows you to write SQL code that will be translated to a MapReduce job in the backend. Okay. Are there any other languages that one should know to interact with Hadoop? Well, with Hadoop, there are pretty many languages you can work with. SQL is very, very popular. Other than that, it is Pig, although we see that Pig language is kind of getting deprecated nowadays. And then there are many programming languages such as, for example, Spark. Spark allows you to actually write an application and do the processing using either Python or Java or Scala. Okay. For those who are interested in learning more about Hadoop, are there any resources that you would recommend? Yes. So I definitely recommend everyone to start with the Hadoop, the definitive guide. Okay. This includes all basics and theory and discusses about how Hadoop works on the inside. Other than that, and for HBase, there is also the, the definitive HBase, and I recommend those two books because they are written by the actual committers of the projects. And then other than that, there are plenty of resources on the internet. I usually read the blogs from vendors such as Cloudera or Hortonworks or even Databricks. They are very up-to-date and they contain really useful practices. Okay. Good. Good. That's, that sounds good. So with that, we I think we've covered everything to do with the project that you are working on and the challenges. So I think we'll move into the lightning round. And that's where we get to know you just a little bit better as we end the podcast. So I'd like you to answer the questions as briefly with the first thing that comes to mind. And are you ready? Sure. Yes. Let's go. Okay. So what project are you most proud of? This is one of my favorites because it is something that hasn't been tried before and it had great success. Okay, excellent. What book has made the most impact on your career? I would say my first Java book about programming because this is when I loved doing programming in Java and object-oriented programming. Awesome, okay. Standing or sitting desk? Oh, standing desk, always. Okay, and laptop or desktop? Desktop. All right. Laptop is good for when being on the move, but when I am, I work at my home, I work using my iMac. Okay, excellent. And you just answered the next question, which was Mac or PC. So obviously you're a Mac guy. iPhone or Android? Android. Okay. I'm not an Apple fan especially. I use Mac, but for the phone, I prefer my Android. Okay. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? SSH. <laughs> that is <Yeah>. such... <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Other, other than that, I'm very happy with IntelliJ when writing code. Okay. So, Christos, if people want to know more and get in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, they can find me on my LinkedIn profile and at C underscore Sulius is my Twitter 
Excellent. Folks, I'll put a link to Christos' LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So if you want to connect with him, you can do that there or on Twitter. That's all the time we have today, folks. The biggest compliment that you can give us is telling a friend where to find us or writing a review on iTunes. What did you think of today's podcast? We love feedback. You can email me at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.